Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Um, if you notice, what's out here is Black Lives Matter. It's a very controversial statement. If you didn't know, we're in a really controversial time right now. I don't know if you know that. Maybe you're in a box. I don't know. Um, but we've got an election coming up, and we couldn't be more divided as a people and a country. Um, and God, as we've looked through Scripture, is trying to get us to see that He wants us to be unified in Him and in what He wants um, the statement Black Lives Matter that's out there uh, was a part of the Banneker Advisory Council. That's the council that I sit on that's a part of this facility. This facility is the hub of the African-American community in Bloomington. This used to be the old segregated school that you sit in as we speak. And so that statement to us may be offensive. It may be like, why did we do that? Why is that there? But to a community that has been struggled, that has struggled in Bloomington, it's a statement that means something. Uh, the Manicure Advisory Council, when we said to paint that, it has no connection to the organization, just the statement. And a lot of people say, well, you can't separate the two. And I always point people to something called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest creeds in the church. It's been around for centuries. Uh, and in the Apostles' Creed, at the very end of the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Y'all ain't Catholic. <laughs> the Catholic Church took this statement, the Holy Catholic Church, and they used it for their benefit. They used it to bring about a system of control, a system of politics, a system of the way they wanted to do things. They used the creed for their benefit. They used these words so that they could elevate themselves and then use the Apostles' Creed as their ability to control people. The statement is still true. The Catholic Church means the true church of Christ. It mean, that's what Catholic means, the, the true church of God, the true people of God. But that's been twisted by an organization. It's no different than a statement like that that's out there. So as you see that, I would ask that you pause your heart. Am I all in favor of that and, you know, everything? I, I struggle with the statement. I really do. I'll be honest. Just like I struggle with the Catholic Church. I'm like, eh, that's a struggle for me. Are they, do they know Christ or not? I don't know. They teach some crazy stuff that isn't in the Bible. Like the Pope right now is fighting with all the bishops and cardinals. I don't know if you know that right now. The Pope made a statement. He's supposed to be infallible and perfect, and the bishops and cardinals said he's wrong. Oops. I mean, that, that's what's going on in our culture. So you think it's just culture that's messed up in politics? The church is a mess. And the reason why Paul is writing this book in Romans is to try to clarify the same things we're dealing with today. Paul is writing this book of Romans and he's trying to back the truck up. And where we find ourselves in the book of Romans right now is in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in those chapters, what Paul has done for the first eight chapters is lay out the deity, the person, everything about Jesus that he could lay out that makes him Yahweh of the Old Testament who is the Messiah who came to save. That's what Paul's been doing for eight chapters of his book. Now in chapters 9, 10, and 11... Paul is looking back at the Old Testament. He's looking at all the terminology. He's looking at the Israelites. He's looking at they, who they are, and he's trying to say, look, let me give some clarity as to who the true Israelites are, who the true Catholic church, who the true black lives that matter are. Like That's exactly what Paul's doing in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. And it was incredibly offensive in his day for him to write this. This chapter... 
These three verses, man, brought hatred, just like last week we looked at. We're going to look at this week that when Jesus, in the book of Luke, is coming to the end of his life, he's coming to the end of his ministry, he's coming to the end of all of human history's plan for salvation for God's people that the Bible declares, he starts teaching some really crazy stuff in about Luke 14 all the way to the end. Stuff that really offended his culture. That's why everybody said, yeah, crucify him. Yeah, we're, I'm not really going to fight it. Yeah, let's get rid of him. Even those that, like Peter and the disciples, they tried to fight and Jesus is like, don't fight. What? what? But you're going to die. And Jesus is like, yeah. That's been the plan. But I'm going to come back to life. I don't know if I can believe that. That's really weird. Haven't seen that happen too much. Most people die and are dead. Right? And so Jesus in Luke 15, we're going to look in Luke 15 today as well as Romans, is walking us through this. And so when we look at the story of Romans, it's no different than what we face today. The Bible is such a relevant book because it's God and man, and he's speaking and has been speaking the same things about himself and the same things about mankind and you and us for all of human history. And there are tons of people running around trying to steal God's terms, steal his name, steal his character, steal steal his attributes to use for their own glory, their own church's glory, so that they can say, I'm a God just like God. And we have to be real careful to discern that. And we live in a broken, fallen world. I don't know how you're going to vote in the next election, but I hope that by the end of this message, when you do vote, you'll vote because you believe that your job and your life is to tell about the good news, that you're not ashamed of who Christ is in your life. And yes, there is a time when it is hard to vote, where you vote in brokenness, which we'll see today, that you bur- you're just like, ugh, that's how I'm gonna feel when I go to the polls. I don't know about you guys, I'm not real excited. I'm not like, woohoo, this is great. Jesus is running for office. Not happening. And so I, I go in there like, eh. And that's been the story of God's people all along. That's why Paul's writing the Romans. And it's why when we get to chapters 13 and 14, Paul talks about government in Romans. And it's really offensive. He tells people to pay their taxes. What? I don't want to pay taxes. And so you go on through this. And so this morning, what I want us to think about is don't forget what Paul has said that the intent of this book is. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news about the plan of God for the salvation of the world because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, for anyone who places their faith, first to the Jew. In other words, God said, I'm going to offer this message to the Jewish people and when they get it, their job is to take it out to the ends of the world. And the reason Jesus came and died is because the Jews were failing at doing that. So Jesus came back to said, I'm done. Everybody needs to see and I'm coming back to reclaim that. But we have the Bible that shows us stories of his faithfulness. And then he says, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. In other words, God started with Abraham. He kept running that through. It was supposed to be a witness to the world. Throughout the Old Testament, there are Gentiles that that repent. Nineveh repents. Rahab repents. These are people that aren't Jewish that decide to believe in the God of the Bible. Believe in the God, Yahweh, of the Old Testament. And so it was first given to them, then it's given to others. It's like you as a parent. Your kids don't get paid at two years old for work they do. You do. It first goes to you, then you disseminate to the family. Duh. It's kind of the same thing. And then he says, for in it God's righteousness 
is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we've looked at this, not by works, but by faith, because it's God that makes people righteous, not us making ourselves righteous. And we'll look at that again today. So today, here's what we're going to talk about. Romans, chapters 9 and 10. You can click on the link if you have it. Not ashamed of confession. Can I be honest with you? There's nothing that can make you feel more ashamed than confession. To, to, to bear the weight of I'm wrong. To bear the weight of maybe I'm not wrong, but I'll confess the part I had in it. Even though you're not confessing your part. Whew. To confess the glory of God in a world that says there is no God or has made up their own version of God is difficult. But that's our job. Your life and my life every day is confessing something. The way you live, the way you speak, the way you think, the actions you take. Every day I am confessing with my life, with my mouth, with how I respond. I'm confessing and people are getting my confessions all around me all the time. And the Bible, the original plan was for God to make Adam and Eve and for them to confess for all the rest of human history how great God was and confess how wonderful it was to be perfect with God. That was their job. And then they said, no, we're not going to confess that anymore. We're going to confess that we want to be gods now. And all of us have been doing that ever since. We go to God with our prayer requests and we say, God, this is what I want. Not God, who are you and what might you want? And we've been taught to pray that way. We've been taught to think this. We've been taught to go to the Bible and find what's in it for you. How about we go to the Bible and find God, who he is, his character, his full character, like Paul lays out throughout Romans. That's what we're to be and do and see Israel in the Old Testament was supposed to be a confessional people. The way they did the sacrifices, the way they did their calendar, the way they did their lives, the way they treated the land. Everything Israel did was supposed to be a confession of the God they believed in. And little by little, Israel kept saying, nah, we don't like that. We're not going to do it. Nah, we'll just change this. Well, I know God said that, but it's not that big a deal. And they would keep just changing instead of declaring, God, none of these rules we do saves us, but we know you do, but we're going to do them because you asked us to, but we recognize we don't get anything for doing them, but we're going to do them because we love you and we think you're good and we think you're right and you asked us to do it. Thank you so much. That was supposed to be their confession to the world so that the world stopped doing what they wanted to do and said, what does God want for humanity to do? And God said, there's going to come a day when the reality of mankind under the curse, I will come, I will bring a Messiah, I will bring a Savior, and then there will be an abolishment, so to speak, of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the, and the food systems of the Old Testament because now you're going to eat of me, Christ said. That's what communion is. It's the blood and body. I don't need the food laws of the Old Testament because I have Christ. Now, are the food laws of the Old Testament pretty wise? Absolutely. Do some research. Lots of diseases in the animals God says don't eat. Lots of problems in the animals God says don't eat. Lots of environmental issues. If you kill all the birds of prey, guess what multiplies? Snakes and mice. Snakes and mice bring disease, especially if you live in a house that doesn't have drawers and clothes and they crawl under the tent and then poop on your food. And you get all the diseases that mice carry. 
You see, God's wise in how he lays out the laws. Now, do we have to obey them? No. Even in terms of how God told people to go to the bathroom in the Old Testament was a confession. In the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, and you've, if you've been in my church, in this church, not my church, our church, if you've been in this church, you've heard me say that I own a spade at home, and in that spade has the verse, Deuteronomy 23.12, burned into the handle. It was given to me by some men. It's a spade. Because in that verse, it says you are to take a spade, and when you need to relieve yourself, you are supposed to go out to the camp, dig a hole for yourself in the ground, poop in it, and cover it back up so that you do not defile yourself before the Lord or his camp. And you think... If you were in that time, you'd be like, that's a lot of work. And that's a big confession, right? You grab your spade by the tent and you start walking. And everybody's like, there goes grandma going number two. She's confessing it. You go, grandma. Like everybody knew what you were doing when you picked up the spade because you didn't have to go number one with the spade, right? So it was a confession. It's like the walk of shame if I preach too long and you're holding it and you got to go and you get up and go and you're like, you're all gonna, they know where I'm going. Then they're going to hear the hand dryer. There's no hope, right? It's the same thing and yet we're so embarrassed by confessing that we're, we're just human. we got issues. We need a God to save us. This body produces death in itself and bad things come out of it and i got to cover it up and God covers me and like that's what this is all about in confession. And so when Paul is writing this, that's what he's getting at. Last week we looked at Romans 9.18. It says, so then, he, God, shows mercy to those he wants to. And he hardens those he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? In other words, if God does what he wants, then, then how can we resist? How do we sin? How can we not do God's will. And then he says, but who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? That would be a good thing for us to learn in our culture today. Who are you to talk back to God? Because we live in a culture where everybody thinks they can talk back to whoever they want. Because I am free and I have the right. Yeah, you do. And God says you have the right to talk back to him too. You're not free from the consequences of it. Neither am I. He goes on and he says... Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make the same lump, one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? In other words, it's God's call, what he wants to do. You can look at that message last week and read through it. I encourage you to go back. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But here's the deal. We don't like a God that's in control, that's sovereign and can do what he wants when he wants. I don't like that idea. I want a God that fits my box, what I think he should do, when he should do it. I want a God that makes sense to me, that my mind can put God and wrap him up and put him in a nice container so that I can show him to people. It's to be like, here's my God, do you want him? Here's my God, do you want him? Here's my God, do you want him? Oh, you don't? Oh, well, thank you. Versus there's a God and he is crazy wild and free to do what he wants and he loves us and he cares about humanity and he hasn't left us desolate. Oh, and by the way, we're desolate whether there's a God or not. So I'm going to choose in a God that says we're desolate, we're a mess, it's, we're in trouble, and he's done something about it. Not, well, you better work harder. You better try harder. Because that's not our God. Our God says you can try as hard as you want. It's not going to save you. The only thing that will save you is do you believe in me? 
That's exactly what he says. And just like we teach people to read scripture, we talk about when you go to the scripture, you should read it as God, man, me, do. What is this passage telling us about the character of God, who he is? What is this passage telling us about who mankind is? Based on the reality and the truth of those two things, and I've done my work figuring out to make sure that I'm not making God who I want or I'm not making people who I want, what is God saying about me? And then finally, once I get that figured out, I ask God, what would you like me to do? do this completely backwards. We see something we want to do. We get a dream, a will, a vision for our life, and then we go to God with it and say, you make people help me get this done. And God's like, what? We don't worship. We don't come to him and be like, I, did you say this? I, this is something I have a heart for. I just thought I'd bring it to you. Is, I'll be patient, whatever you want. Like, I just, I just, just want to Check in with you because I love you. and That's the way we're supposed to approach God, which we'll see this morning. So we twist this constantly. He goes on in verse 22 and he says, And what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath? That's us. In other words, we see all this wrath in the world and, we, and this evil and we wonder, why doesn't God take care of it? Why hasn't he come back? Maybe God's trying to say, I'm being real patient with you. I love you. You know, I used to tell our kids all the time, I'm like, you'll know it's gotten real bad at home when there's not a bed in your room. Just a pillow on the floor because you won't listen. You won't do what we've asked. And you think, well, that's just terrible. They can come take your kid away for that. Yeah, they can but let's be honest, I probably deserved that growing up and my parents never did it and it probably would have helped me. My parents beat me, it's good. Like they, I needed it, trust me. I was horrible to my mother. I've told those stories before. She still loves me, praise God. But again, he looks and he says, what if God, the reason he's patient with evil is he's trying to show how patient, loving, kind and gracious he is and that he's also wrathful and just and that's why we have this mess in the world. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? In other words, God says, I, I, I look at you with mercy. I chose to be merciful. He could have killed Adam and Eve and started over, and he didn't. He chose mercy. And then he says, on the ones, on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also the Gentiles. In other words, it's been offered to everyone. God doesn't just want one single group of people. He wants all groups of people. But they've got to submit to him. It's not on their terms. He goes on and he says this, as he also says in Hosea. Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. Hosea was a prophet. Get this, if you want a hard life, if you think you have if you think it's rough, Hosea was called to marry a prostitute. Try to explain that to your fellow pastors and prophets. God has called me to marry this woman. Oh, that, that's great. Has she changed? Is she really radically transformed? Nope, still a prostitute. Oh, that, we don't do that in the Old Testament. That You're not supposed to do that. I, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm telling you, God has asked me. So has God told you he's going to like change her and change a whole group of people? No, not at all. It's going to be a mess. And my life is going to be a mess of dealing with this woman who keeps giving herself to other people and I chase her and she doesn't care. That, that's going to be my life and that's my prophecy to you all. Oh, by the way, my life is the representation, is the confession. Hosea is the confession of all of us. That we run to other lovers all the time because God's love isn't enough. 
And so Paul purposefully uses Hosea because he's trying to make that point. And he says, I will call not my people my people. By the way, that was Hosea's first child. First child was born, God said, you're gonna name him not my people. In other words, this isn't my kid. Why would you name a kid not my kid? Maybe because you don't know if it's your kid. They didn't have DNA testing in this day and your wife's sleeping with other people and you're like, not sure she's my kid. And so it's a confession. Hosea confesses, I'm not sure if this is my, not my kid. That's brutal to do to a child. <laughs> and that's exactly what, and then it says, but I will call not my people my people. In other words, God says, you're going to name them not my people, but you need him to know that that's not his real name. His real name is, he's mine. So when you feel like you're not a people, when you feel like God doesn't love you, when you feel like you've done so much, when you've been raised in a mess, when you're in a broken family, in a broken home, and the mess that this is, you can know that there's a God that says, you can be my people. You can be my son or daughter. Just confess He goes on, he says, it will be in this place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. God says, no, you're not my people, not unless you've become my sons and daughters. And the only way to become a son or daughter of God, Jesus said, was to be born again, spiritually. I know you were born and you were not my child. I know you were born into the mess you were in. Maybe you were born in privilege and it wasn't a mess and it was wonderful. Either way, have you come to the point where you recognize that God invites you to be his son or daughter, that he wants to adopt you, but to be adopted means you have to leave one family to join another family. You have to leave the family of the world to become a part of the family of God. And man, that is something that's difficult for people to do, to leave their culture, to leave their ways, to leave their things and say, I'm gonna find out who God is. God is, his culture, his ways, his purposes, and I'm going to lean into that family. Oh, and by the way, God's family's just as messy as the last one you left, except we keep coming back to the right place to get answers. Goes on this way, and when God talks about this, and you know, we have no right to be called sons. You can't earn sonship. It's through birth, Right? You can't like go to a family and say, hey, I'm going to clean your yard, I'm going to do this stuff, and I'm going to be your son, right? Your daughter, right? Like if I do enough, you just give me a room in your house, and they're like, who are you? That is so weird. No. Like do you you need something? We can talk about adoption, and we can talk about you coming a part of this family and what that means, and, but really? And, And so he looks, and 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 so the story Jesus tells that gets to the heart of this, and we're going to dig into this, is in Luke chapter 15. It's one of the favorite stories of all of Christendom. What's it called in your Bible? Look at Luke 15 and look at the heading. By the way, those headings are not inspired. God did not ask men to write the headings that you see. The numbers are not inspired in your Bible either. Those were added so we could easily find stuff. A lot of times those numbers are in the wrong spot. They break passages up when they shouldn't. Just, just let a little, you know, kind of theology lesson right there. What does your Bible say is the title of this, this section in Luke chapter 15? The story of what? Lost sheep, okay? What's it say down further? Or the prodigal son, right? You have that one where it says prodigal? Does yours say the story of the prodigal son? Wrong. No, what's yours say, Brian? Okay. Can I just tell you that's a really bad title? It's really bad. 
The story is not about us. It's not about the sons. It's about the father. The story of the prodigal son is about the father, and we've turned it into me. That's me. Me, 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 me. And then we turn it into the older brother. We're like, and him, 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 him. And God's like, hello, the story's about me. And so what people write in the Bible, I'm not against it. Like, it does explain kind of what's there, but it's like, really? So let's dig in why I think that. So you have this son. He wants his inheritance now. He goes to his dad. He says, you're dead to me. Give me my money. And the father, which blows my mind, because I would not do this. If one of my kids came to me and said, Dad, you're dead to me. Please give me your inheritance now. I'd be like, no, get out of my house. Like, that's not going to happen. What are you talking about? Go live your life. No. No, no, no. This father is so caring and loving and knows that his son is going to squander it, the passage says, but he still gives him everything. God has given you and I everything. He's given us life and breath, and we don't deserve it. We deserve to be creatures of wrath, and God is like, I'll give you life. I'll give you a chance. I'll give you another chance. I'll give you another chance. That's the father. He gives the inheritance to the son, knowing the son's going to squander it. Son goes out. It's the story of Israel. God gives his people everything, and they squander it. That's what Paul's writing about. This parable that Jesus is talking about, the people that are hearing this makes them really mad because he puts them in two camps of people. You're either the younger son who wants the heavenly father dead and you could care less, or you're the older son that thinks you deserve anything and you want him dead too, just you're more patient. Y'all want me dead, and I'm going to die for you. Wow. We pick up the story in Luke 15, 17, when the younger son comes to his senses. He goes, he squanders everything that the father gave him. Duh. Okay? The father knows it's going to happen. He says, when he came to his senses, he said. When he came to his senses, in other words, he's confessing. He's confessing the reality of his situation. He's confessing the reality of his father. He's confessing the reality of his own life and heart. And look at what he says. When he came to the confession, he goes, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. You know, we, most of us here are pretty well taken care of. We didn't think about if we're going to eat this week. There are a lot of people in this community who are wondering if they're going to eat this week. That's why we have 40,000 pounds of food coming. That's a lot, by the way. Like if we pass out every box we have, it's going to be about 3%, 4% of the Bloomington population. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to do that. We got to do it. And he looks and he says, I'm hungry. So he says, I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I'm awesome. And you should give me stuff because I'm so good and you love me. Is that what he says? I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. In other words, the son has come into a place of confession and brokenness where he's like, I've, I, I now recognize how awesome my dad is. I recognize that my dad treated me so well, so loving, so kind. I recognize he treats servants better than I thought he treated me. Because see, the younger son all the time was like, my dad didn't give me this, and dad didn't do that. And dad, well, I'm just going to get what I want and go. That's how people deal with God. That's how they deal with the church, his family. A lot of people are like the younger brother in the church family. When they don't get what they want, they're out. They get what they want from a church, they get what they want from a ministry, and then they leave. And they go to the next ministry and the next one. 
Just like Hosea's wife, prostituting over and over again to get what she wanted, over and over. Versus asking ourselves and dealing with the fact, why do we keep doing that? Why did I leave the last one? And why, what, what's going on in my heart? Not them. Look, you can point a finger at anybody. We're all a mess. Point a finger and look at your own heart. And he goes, look, he says, so he got up and went to his father. Oh, that's the spade going number two. Like you're, uh, everybody knows, like this is going to be the walk of shame. He's going to have to confess everything he did. Probably people know what he was doing. I don't want to talk about what I've done. I don't want people to know what I've done. I just, I'll just keep trying. I'll just keep trying because I don't want to talk about what's really going on and what really happened. He goes on and he says, so he got up and went. But when the sun was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? With what? Compassion. The father had been waiting the whole time. Every day, looking and when he saw him, he was filled, and he ran. Back then, they wore robes. To run in a robe, you got to be like, woo, and run. That would have been a little disrespectful for some old guy to have his robe up, taken off running down the road. And it would have been very noticeable. Probably his son thought, I'll just sneak in the back door. Nobody will know. Shh. I'll just get in, and maybe I can just be a servant on the back scene. You know, I don't have to deal with anything. Just, I just want to eat. I just need some food. And the father's running. And he's like, oh, no. What's going to happen? Like, he's going to kill me. He's coming after me because I'm coming back. And he told, I know I shouldn't ever come back once I did what I did. I, I have no right to come back. Oh, this is bad. And he threw his arms around his neck. Now dad's running. And he's running. And then he does this. And you're like, I'm dead. And he just kisses you. And he threw his arms. And he kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, Father, look at this. The son's not like, oh, we're good now. Got my bedroom back. I'm going to be fed. I got, this is good. I'll get my hair. No. The son says, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves. Like, he doesn't even listen to his son. His son's like, oh, I've done that. He's like, I know, I know, I know. You wouldn't be here otherwise. I know. Like the father's like, he goes, quick. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring the ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. I don't know about you. This would not be comfortable. I, no, I just try and, I just, I don't want anybody to know I'm here because I'm a really bad guy. I just, I'm trying to get in the back door and, and then he goes, bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. See, Paul is broken in Romans 9, 10, and 11 because he wishes that the children of Israel would run back to their heavenly father like this, that they would fall and cry out to him, but they won't. They won't recognize that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh and that they should confess him and who he is as the son of God who has come. And they won't come running back. You know what the fatted calf was? The fatted calf was typically in this culture the calf that represented atonement. Because on the Day of Atonement, which we just celebrated, Yom Kippur, they celebrated by, by slaughtering the fatted calf. The bull, the heifer, the, the bull that was slaughtered for the sins of the world, for the sins of God's people. So to slaughter this calf, everybody's going, whoa, he doesn't deserve that. 
Like, that's the special calf that we only... No, the father's like, I got to slaughter this because if I let him back in my house without giving atonement, his sin may come back on us. That's the part of the story everybody misses. That the father is offering this calf, yes, as a celebration, but it's also as a sin offering so that his house is covered by the blood of God, by the blood of Christ, by the blood, the temporary blood of this sacrifice pointing to the someday permanent blood that Jesus would shed. That's the point of the story. And look at the response in Romans, because Paul goes on and he says, but Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Only those that come back to him and cry out to him will be saved. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you are. Just as much as you say you're an Israelite. And then he says, look at this. For the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. In other words, the prodigal son, the son that squandered, realized that he was deserving of the fire of Gomorrah and Sodom. And he came back and said, you can kill me, but I got no other options. I'm going to die out there in the world. I'm going to die with the messages they offer. They don't care about me. They don't care about God. They don't care about you. They don't understand anything. And you've given me everything. I'm coming back to you. And Paul is writing and saying, Isaiah cried out in the Old Testament that this is what Israel would do. They would reject. They wouldn't be like the younger son. Oh, no, they would be like the older son. He goes on. He says, what should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. In other words, the Gentiles didn't even know what the right thing to do was. They didn't even understand what the Bible was about. But now they've been made right. How? Because of the Father's sacrifice. Because the sacrifice God gave, not the sacrifice they made, the atonement. It's the same thing. The Gentiles who never pursued it, they've obtained righteousness because they believe that God has atoned for their sins. That Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice to cover their sins. They're like the prodigal son saying, are you kidding me? I can, you love me that much when I've squandered everything? And he says... But Israel pursuing the law for righteousness. You see that? Not pursuing God, not pursuing a relationship with him. See, they use the law to be able to stand before God and say, look what I've done. You owe me. See, I'm, I'm a good son. I've, I've done my part, which we'll see in just a second. And he says, it has not achieved the righteousness of the law. You can't achieve righteousness from the law. Paul laid that out earlier. We looked at that in a previous message. That the law doesn't make you right. The law shows you how messed up you are. So that you come to the person who can make you right, just like the prodigal son does. He goes on and he says, why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. In other words, I deserve it. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. In other words, as it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Jesus is called the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, and he will build his church. He will put the pieces in place. We are called living stones by Peter that are being placed in God's perfect building that he's building. That's, but the Israelites don't want the, the Jesus stone. They don't want the new temple. They want the old temple. And God said, I'm going to level it until I come back and build it again. 
And that's exactly what happened. You know, the Bible says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the second we see that, we go, blessed are those who, who look to do the right thing and know the right thing and do the right. Who makes us right? Jesus. So if we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, who are we hungering and thirsting for? Jesus. We're hungering for him. And when we look at his laws and his statutes and his ordinances, we look at them and we go, how does this show me who you are? God, man, me, do. How does this show me your character and your heart? Do you want me to do this? I, I want to I listen to you. I wanna... That's how we're to approach. And Israel wouldn't do that. Israel said, we have our law. We do our law. We deserve what we get. And God's like, yeah, you deserve what you get for that attitude. He goes on, he says, in Luke 15, this is the story. Now the older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked, what are these things, what these things meant? In other words, he doesn't even want to go to the party. He's like, come here, go, go find out why they're singing and dancing. That just drives me nuts when they're all happy and they like, you know, are rejoicing because I'm working hard here out in the field. And they're just having a party and I'm doing all the hard work and so he sends a servant. He doesn't even go look to see like, oh, there's a party. I'd like to go. I wonder what they're partying about. This could be fun. Oh, no, no, no. You know, it's no part of it. And he goes, your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he, is, he has him back safe and sound. Oh, would say what? Then the brother became angry, did not want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. The father is going out and saying, son, it's a party. Like, this is awesome. Your, your brother's alive. Look, I've been here slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Pr seriously? Seriously? Never disobeyed? Like when you were two, you didn't disobey? Don't touch that. Like you didn't do that? I mean, this is a lie. This is what we do. We go, I'm a good person. I, I'm righteous. I've done the right thing, and God owes me. And I'm like, you are, No. No, no, no. None of us are. And he looks, he goes on, and he says, yet you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He thinks the celebration, right, is about what? It's a party for people to just have fun while everybody else works hard. He slaughtered the atonement sacrifice. It wasn't a goat for fun, when he slaughtered that bull, when he slaughtered that calf, that would have been a symbol of covering this older brother's sins too. And he's like, but you didn't give me a goat. And, I would, and look what he, I love this. But when your son of yours comes home, who's just devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattered calf for him. How did he know what this younger brother had been doing? How did he know what, because that's exactly what he was doing. We know that. It says it in, look, how did, how did he know that that's what the younger brother was doing? He'd been spied on. Keeping tabs. Oh, you see, it's more for me, because don't you ever come back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure people know. Once you've confessed something, I'm going to be sure everybody knows what you've done. He goes on and he says, son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. In other words, he never asked for a goat. He didn't ask. He goes on and he says, 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And he's found. We have to celebrate this. Look at what Paul says in Romans. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, concerning the hard-hearted brothers, is for their salvation like the father was in the story of the parable of the prodigal son, of the, of the, or the, the story of the good father. I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, because they disregard the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. Isn't that what the older brother did? The older brother was trying to establish his position as the inheritor of all that God had by all he was doing. And the father's like, you don't get it. He goes on and he says, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. For Christ, the Messiah, that's what Christ means. The Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, in the Old Testament, you did what was right, believing that a Messiah would come to forgive you for what you got wrong. Now we know the Messiah came, and we know that we are right before God because of what he did. And if we get it wrong, we can come back to him and say, I got it wrong. You're forgiven. It's the same story going two different directions. Romans 10 goes on, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. In other words, if you have accepted Christ, if you've invited Christ to come into your life, if you're like the younger brother and you've surrendered to the family, to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, if you've done that, then you'll live by the law because you're like, I'm so glad to be home. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And now everything I see that you do starts to make sense to me. Like before I was like, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I don't understand why you made me do that. Now I come home and I'm like, oh, I want to do that. Oh, I get why that works. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that reveals who you are. That's why you do that that way. Like all of a sudden you get excited about being a part of the family. It still costs you. It's still a struggle. There are things you don't understand. But it's a process of like almost being reborn that the younger son comes back and says, I got to see things completely different because I spent my whole life fighting all of this and now I got to figure out how I embrace all of this. He goes on and he says, but the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. In other words, the confession is near you. We have the Bible. It's the confession of God. It's near you. You have it near you. It's in your mouth. When you read it, when you see it, you can speak, that you can confess things about who God is, and it's in your heart. You begin to understand who God's created you to be, who he is, and it's deeper than even your mouth. It's, it's your thoughts. It's everything is what Paul is saying. And actually, Paul's referring here back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says that the eventual perfect obedience of Israel would only come on the day when God fulfilled his new covenant promise perfectly and totally changes all the hearts of his people. That's what Deuteronomy 30 says. It was a prophetic text. And he says, the Lord will come and circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So you will love your father, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul. And you may live, and that means live forever. When he says, don't say in your heart, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 9, 4, where God warns Israel, do not say in your heart these things. And God says, it's because of my righteousness that I have a relationship with you. 
When he says, who will descend into the abyss, Paul is saying very simply, he says, this is Christ's incarnation, that Christ went down and came back to life. The point is that there's nothing Israel did to make any of this happen. You can't make Christ do what he wants you to do when you want him to do it. He goes down, he's on his timing. That's what Paul's laying out. And the reason they rejected Jesus is because Jesus wouldn't be on their time frame. He didn't fulfill what they had decided the scripture said. We can be just as guilty if we're not careful. He goes on and he says this. He says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Yahweh who saves is Yahweh. That's what Jesus is Lord means. See, we've taken this verse to mean something crazy. Like, well, if I just say Jesus is Lord, then I get to heaven. That's exactly what Israel was doing. Israel was saying, well, that's my dad. That's my dad. I'm just waiting for him to die so I can have everything. What? That's so terrible. Jesus is my Lord. It doesn't look like your Lord because it doesn't look like you give him authority in your finances, in your calendar, in your voting, in the way you eat. You don't give Jesus authority in those areas of life. So is he really your Lord? Or are you just confessing, God's going to save me and I can do whatever I want? Then he says, and believe in your heart. So confess and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It doesn't say you might be saved, could be saved. Maybe if you do enough, maybe if you don't screw up anymore, God will save you. No, he says all you have to do is come to the place, like the story of the prodigal son, like the story of the good father, where you come and you say, I'm nothing. I've got nothing to offer. I am broken. I am shattered. And can I just tell you, that's how I wake up every morning. See, this good news of the gospel I have to confess every morning because when I wake up, I don't feel worthy to be your pastor. I don't feel worthy to, to do what I do. I get overwhelmed. I get phone calls about 40,000 pounds of food to come and I'm like, why does the guy with no building have to do this? Why, why me? And God's like, why not you? I don't know. I don't want to do it. <laughs> See, this is what God does. He says, I just want you to be a confessional person, Matt. I want you to confess your sin. I want you to confess who I am. And if we do that, it results in salvation. It's not like a carrot on a string. Well, you got to do more. Oh, oh, did you really confess me? Oh, no. No, it's coming to the place where you're like, Father, you're Father. You're in control of all the servants, all the slaves. I'm coming back to you. I am nothing. And the Father says, finally, that's someone I can work with. And I will not leave you or forsake you or abandon you because you get it. And then he goes out and confronts the older brother who thinks he has it and just is fighting his dad the whole time. He goes on and it says this as we wrap up. He says, now the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Not ashamed. If you believe on him, then you'll be a confessional person. You'll confess your sins to other people. Had a conversation the other day. I think I shared this a few weeks ago. I had a conversation the other day with one of my daughters. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm sorry we messed you up. We did. We're human. We were learning. We are young. There are things we would do differently now. But we tried to point you to Jesus, point you to his word. And she looked at me. She goes, Dad, I don't really remember. And I even confessed. I said, you know, I, I was short-tempered. I got angry with you, frustrated. I said, I just... I hate that, that you had to see that part of me. And she looked at me and she said, and I remember, Dad, 
That's not what I remember. What I remember is you always coming in and asking forgiveness. Emily, my other daughter, as we were talking as a family, and she said, yeah, Dad, and I remember hiding under the covers because I didn't want to forgive you. Because <laughs> I knew you were coming back in. And I didn't want to deal with it. That wasn't me, people. It wasn't me. It was Christ working in me, breaking my heart as I knew I hurt my, my family, my kids, and I'm downstairs. What am I doing? Sorry, God. And I went up and then asked and confessed to them, I'm sorry. I'm a broken man. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. Your mom needs Jesus. We need him to save us. He is our Lord, and I didn't let him be Lord in that circumstance, and I'm sorry. That's the kind of people we're supposed to be and to declare that he has every right to do whatever he wants because he is God. Romans 10 says this, and this is a good reminder for us right now as we're going into this election season and the mess we're in, as we've got this opportunity to pass out food to people that will be a temporary fix to an eternal problem. That they're still gonna hunger for something more even though we're gonna feed them for a week. It's not wrong to feed people It's just temporary. He says, but how can they call on him they have not believed in? How can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the good news, the gospel of good things. What are you announcing and confessing with your life? Are you confessing that you're not ashamed of the God of the Bible? You're not ashamed? Are you confessing your sin because you don't have to be ashamed of it because God has covered it and he has forgiven it? Are you going before him and confessing his greatness and confessing your thankfulness for the body of Christ and his church? Are you more like the older brother, more like the Israelites that Paul's heart is breaking for in these three chapters? Because God says he wants to have a relationship with you where he is running to throw his arms around you. But he needs your heart. That there's the intersection of God's sovereign will and his ability and our decision to allow him to have us. I don't know how that works. Scholars have been arguing about it for centuries, but I know it's there because I see it in scripture. So the question for us is, how are you doing? Have you confessed? Are you willing to confess? Are you willing to come to him? Are you willing to believe that there's a God that when you come to him and confess, he's not like, now go do this. But he wants to celebrate that confession with you and then say, let me show you some things we need to do. And he goes out with you, not you go do. See, the older brother thought, I just gotta go do. Now the younger brother and the father have this relationship of, Let's us do this together. See, that's our story. There's no other one like it. There's no religion like it. So let me ask you this morning, have you confessed that Jesus, Yahweh who saves, that's what his name means, Yeshua is Lord, that he is who he says he is, that he died, he paid the price, he went to the abyss, he was raised up, and that his word is true, and that he wrote the book we have, and he's preserved it for his glory so that we can know him. And if you've not confessed that, let me just tell you, he is waiting with open arms. And if you're more like the older stuck, and you're just getting more and more angry because the world seems to be just further and further, 
Just come to your Father. He's inviting you to celebrate who he is and celebrate with those who are coming to know him. And many of you here that are having changed hearts, that God is changing your life. He's showing you more of who he is. Man, let's celebrate what he is doing. Instead of looking and saying, wow, look at everything he's not doing. And for those of us who are celebrating, man, take time to celebrate. Be like, man, thank you for this message. Thank you for reminding me of this. Thank you for reminding me how great you are. I'm just so grateful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the folks that are in this room. Lord, we ask you to change hearts and minds. And Father, I'm, I'm grateful for what you've done. Lord, I confess my shortcomings to you, my selfishness, my pride, my my desire to want to be recognized sometimes, my thoughts that think I deserve things. Father, we come before you and I pray that those that recognize where they're at would come before you and they would fall before you and say, I'm not worthy, only to hear you say, you're my son or my daughter. Lord, help us to celebrate what you've done for us, like Paul's longing that the Israelite brothers and sisters that, that he longed for. He was longing that they would celebrate with him who you were, and he was so broken, they wouldn't see it. They thought they were confessing you, and instead they were confessing the rejection of you. Lord, help us to know your word, to, to know who you are, to know how you've created men, so that we can know who we are and do what you've called us to do. Help us to respond to you in your name. Amen.